Well, hey, uh, good morning, Life Points. Good to be with you. My name's Kale. I'm the teaching pastor at our Delaware campus, and uh, grateful to be with you online this morning. Guests, grateful to have you here with us as well. We kicked off a brand new series last week that we're calling Asking for a Friend, and uh, we're sort of asking those tough questions that uh, many people, I think, in the church and in the culture or society at large uh, maybe are thinking or want to ask, but don't necessarily want to voice out loud. And so uh, we're just kind of voicing those out loud uh, for you, and then we're trying to uh, hopefully answer them from uh, God's Word. And specifically, we're in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 over the course of this series. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 6 this morning if you've got a copy of the Scriptures uh, with you. Now, it's interesting to note, uh, we, didn't, we didn't really come up with these questions that we're asking simply by you know, sort of putting our finger up and trying to gauge the cultural wind uh, as much as really we just looked in the scriptures and in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 and saw that, you know, the early church uh, was facing many of the same problems and asking many of the same questions that we still are facing and are asking today. There was conflict, uh, division, sex and sexuality, marriage, divorce, singleness, all these things the early church uh, was dealing with as well. And so last week, uh, we looked at this question of why are Christians always fighting each other? Why are Christians always fighting each other? And so uh, really, we looked into sort of the background. That's what the first part of 1 Corinthians 6 is, that question. But the background of Corinth, of this uh, church that was uh, in a very sexual, sexually immoral culture, uh, the church in particular was dealing with that, but also was very divided, a prideful church that uh, the leaders were saying, basically, we've arrived at such a wise place. We've surpassed the wisdom of the Apostle Paul, the guy who helped plant this church and was sort of our spiritual father. We don't need him anymore. And the Apostle Paul is writing to them saying, and you guys have become fools. You think you're so wise, but you've become fools. And so we looked at how do we as Christians handle conflict in a way that honors Christ and doesn't put uh, our rights above the mission of God. Now, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at this question, which by the way, if you've got kids listening with you, I would just advise you maybe to, uh, to hit pause on that. We're going to be dealing with some things this morning that are more PG-13, uh, but the question this morning are why are Christians so judgmental or backwards when it comes to sex? Why are Christians so judgmental or backwards when it comes to sex? Now, I'm going to do something. I'm going to, I'm going to counter that with another question. And you may say, that's really annoying, Kale, when you do that. Well, um, Jesus did it, so I feel like it's fair game, right? I want to counter that question with another question. And the question is this, why does our society think that any sexual activity, as long as it's between consenting adults, is healthy and, and probably won't hurt anyone? Why does our culture and our society think that any sexual activity, as long as it's between consenting adults, uh, it's healthy and isn't going to hurt anyone? As far as I can tell, that's the only line left in our culture. It just has to be between consenting adults, and it's okay. Now, I will say, by the way, we as Christians, as the church, wholeheartedly and affirm that aspect about it needs to be between consenting adults. We believe all sex should be consensual. God designed it to be that way. Physical or sexual abuse, one person using power, influence, or coercion to force sex from another. It's abhorrent in every way, and we heartily affirm the greater culture's message around that. God hates it, we hate it, and we should fight against it. Sexual abuse is not okay in any way, shape, or form. But we also believe that God 
designed sex with a greater purpose and that he put more boundaries around it than just, hey, make sure it's between consenting adults. That position in and of itself, it just has to be between consenting adults, uh, really assumes, I think, that if God, if he exists, he doesn't really care what we do with our bodies sexually. It's your body, your choice, as long as it's uh, consenting, as long as you have permission and it's another adult, then it doesn't really matter. It's not going to hurt anyone. There are two things I would say to that. One, this is really where the, <clears throat> where the disagreement comes, because as Christians, we don't believe that. Interestingly enough, social research and people's personal experiences don't bear that out. <laughs> that, hey, it was between consenting adults, so it was totally healthy and didn't hurt anyone. That's just not the case. And many of us could testify to that. Yeah, it was between consenting adults, and it still was really damaging and hurt. Two, this doesn't shock us. We would expect to find that because in the Scriptures, in God's Word, we see that sex is powerful, and it's a thing designed by God for a greater and more beautiful purpose. But like all things that are powerful, when you use them in ways that they're not designed for, they can really hurt people. The destructive capacity of sex is great. And like all things that are beautiful, you put, you put beautiful and precious, you put boundaries around it, strong boundaries around it to guard it and to preserve, preserve the beauty of it. Now, uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 20. It's going to raise, I think, a bunch of questions. To be honest, I think it's going to be hard for some of us to hear. I think it's going to challenge many of us. It's a little controversial or very controversial, but we're going to zoom out here because Paul's going to deal with a number of things, and then we'll come back at the end specifically to our question. 1 Corinthians 6, 8, picking up where we left off last week, the Apostle Paul says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This was what we were addressing last week, is there's a selfishness or a greed that has sort of pervaded the Corinthian church where they're putting their personal rights over the mission of God. They're getting in these civil lawsuits with each other, defrauding one another, taking each other to court. And the Apostle Paul is saying, guys, this kind of conduct between believers does not belong for a Christ follower. Someone who's been forgiven and redeemed by God, we have to, we have to act differently. But the attitude, the general attitude in Corinth seems to be we can do whatever we want, because of grace. Grace gives us this license to just do whatever we want with each other, with our bodies, and there's no fear or judgment, a fear of concern or concern about judgment or holiness or uh, staying away, saying, hey, we need to reject sin because they're basically saying, hey, we're saved. It doesn't really matter. In fact, in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul had to address the fact that he says, look, there's a guy in your church. I'm getting reports that there's a guy in your church having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law or with his stepmother, excuse me, with his stepmother. And he's like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> what is happening? A man has his father's wife. He's like, what is happening? And you guys are proud about this, and you've done nothing. So what Paul is doing here, and this is so important for us to know, as he's sort of leaning into and laying into the Corinthians in some ways, it's not because uh, he doesn't like them, or he hates them, or he's trying to be harsh. It's because he loves them. The Apostle Paul, the pastor and spiritual father of this church, is pleading with his spiritual children at Corinth to recognize the danger that they're in. And he's trying to get them to recognize that the continuing, inhabitual, unrepentant sin 
He says, man, that, that means that you're, like, you can't inherit the kingdom. If these things mark your life, if the things he's about to list out, he says, marks your life, there's no repentance, there's no fruit of repentance, then he says, well, then you really haven't experienced grace. Because when you experience grace, it changes you. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Uh, Andrew, one of our student pastors, he was teaching at the Delaware campus last week, and I thought he said this so well. He says, look, when we meet Jesus, he changes our identity, which should lead to a change in our activity. That Jesus changes our identity, which changes our activity. There are things that we stop doing for the sake of Christ, and there are things that we start doing for the sake of Christ. And that's where the Apostle Paul is headed here in the next verse. He talks to him in the first eight verses about, why are you guys filing lawsuits against one another? These civil cases trying to argue with each other about money and things of the sort. He says, why not rather be defrauded for the sake of Christ? And then in verse nine, he starts with this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, that shouldn't be a particularly shocking statement to those of us who are believers. This is at the heart of the gospel, right? That sin separates us from the Father and Christ comes to make us righteous. That he gives us his righteousness and that we place our faith in him. He takes our sin and then gives us his perfect life in our place. And Paul's going to address that here in a moment. But what does he mean here? He says, you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul's going to do then is explain, well, what are the things that make us unrighteous? What are the things that are sinful that separate us from the Lord? And he lists out a bunch of things. It's not an exhaustive list. Right? It doesn't cover every type of sin. Uh, Paul gives multiple lists in the New Testament, but... There are things here and, and certain sinful patterns or behaviors that seem to be prominent or prevalent in the Corinthian church. And so he tells them, do not be deceived. Going on. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And he addresses women in Romans 1. He says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now notice there at the beginning part of verse 11, the past tense. Such were some of you. Paul is saying to them, guys, these behaviors and these patterns of living separate us from the Lord and keep us out of the kingdom when they mark our lives. But he says, that's not, they don't mark our lives anymore. That's not who you are in Christ. Such were some of you. And then you met Jesus. Then Jesus came and went to the cross in your place and rose that you might have new life in him. The man hung on the cross in your place. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. He says, then you met Jesus. You placed your faith in him and those things no longer mark your life. So don't, don't walk in them anymore. He goes on in verse 11 and this is just, I mean, this is pure gospel here, right? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to read that to you. So I just read from the ESV, the English Standard Version. I want to read it to you in the New Living Translation as well because I think it says it in a way that maybe is a little more accessible and it, some, some more light bulbs will go off for us. He says this, verse 9, 10 and 11, same verses, just a little different translation here. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin 
or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality, a little different translation of the same Greek phrase there, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive. That's what reviler means, verbally abusive, or cheat people, swindler. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And to be honest, I think many of us should look at that list and go, oh no. <laughs> Some of us specifically are going, but I've done that. And I think all of us really should be looking at that and saying, but have I ever been greedy? Have I ever been an idolater? Worship something other than the Lord? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To be honest, I'm a little surprised Paul doesn't say, such were all of you. But he says, such were some of you. Some of you were once like that, verse 11. But the good news, you were cleansed. You were made holy. And you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you are, the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians, and you and me. That's who you are in Christ. When you trusted Jesus with your life, you were washed by him, by his blood, and you were set apart for him. That's what it means to be sanctified, set apart, and you were made right with the Father. You were declared righteous in and through Jesus. That's what justified means. He doesn't see your sin anymore. As far as the east is removed from the west, so far as your sin been removed from you, you've been washed clean. And so the apostle Paul is saying, look, don't walk in those things anymore because that's not who you are. Your identity has changed and your activity then should follow. Church, this is really yet another angle. I've heard the gospel described this way sometimes. It's like a diamond with all these different angles. And this is like another angle of the diamond that is the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this when we closed out our Luke series, that the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It's not what you need to do so that God will love you. It's what God has done for you, proving that he loves you. And so you look at it and you say, well, what is that? It's Jesus, the man upon the cross, hung in my place, taking my sin that we might be declared righteous. The good news is that we were adopted into God's family. The good news is that we were once lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. And here, the Apostle Paul gives us another angle of that and says, look, you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You met Jesus these were the things that marked your life. Then you met Christ. You turned from him and put your faith in him. He changed you, and you're a different person now. You've been made right with God by grace through faith. And that's Paul's main point. And I don't want us to miss that. We're going to talk about more stuff in the next few minutes, but don't miss. That's Paul's main point. If you've trusted Jesus with your life, you belong to him. And no matter what has happened, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, or even the things you're currently struggling with, your identity is in Christ. That's who you are, beloved, redeemed, forgiven, washed clean, set apart, and declared righteous. And so Paul says, don't walk in these things anymore, because as we're going to say, God cares deeply about what you do with your body, what you do with your life. Now, Paul's main point is that, his main warning, if I can say it that way, is this, don't be deceived. Do you notice he said that? Don't be deceived. You say, deceived by what? By the teaching or the sentiment that was so prevalent in their church, and I would say, honestly, is prevalent in the church and in the culture today, and that is this, that grace is somehow a license to do whatever you want. 
And I know most people don't usually say it that way, but it gets communicated this way in so many different, from so many different angles. God doesn't really care about your holiness or what you do with your body. Hey man, there's grace, no big deal. This sort of lightheartedness around sin. There's no judgment, no wrongdoing, no such thing as God's wrath against sin. Let's not talk about that. A Christian can be someone who just says they believe in Jesus, but their life doesn't show any evidence of that at all. It doesn't change. They keep doing all the same things they used to. It's this concept that's sometimes called cheap grace. It's cheap. It's, yeah, I mean, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to keep doing all the same things I was doing before. Maybe I'll attend church on Sundays. And Paul says, no, that's not what the life, that's not what it means to be a believer in Christ. Yes, grace is a clean slate, no doubt, washed clean. We're declared righteous. Salvation's a free gift. You can't earn it. You just receive it. But in receiving it, it ought to transform you. It does transform you radically. It's free. It's not cheap. It's costly. And the price of it was the very blood of the Son of God shed on the cross for you and for me. So when we say we trust Jesus and we say, Lord, I'm turning from my sin. Repentance means not just a change of mind, but a change of direction. Lord, I'm turning from this and I'm placing my faith in you. I believe what you did at the cross is enough for me. Paul says, man, that transforms us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit now lives inside of us. And it means new life. Put off the old things. Put on the new. And so Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by people or teachers or influencers or anyone or anything. The voices of culture that are telling you grace is cheap, sin doesn't really matter, and that God doesn't really care that much what you do with your body or your life. As long as you, you know, believe and have faith, that's what's important. Yes, we agree, <laughs> having faith. But it's the object of our faith, Christ, and it's a faith that then works itself out in our lives in good works and in life change. So if there's no evidence of that, Paul says it's not genuine faith. So Paul continues this line of thinking, and he specifically hits the use of our bodies sexually. He's quoting some of the things that we think the Corinthians are saying, some of the slogans they've got, and he's sort of refuting those things. So look on in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. We think is a phrase the, the Corinthians were using. All things are lawful for us, right? We're under grace. The Apostle Paul says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. He says, the question you should be asking is not, how far can I go before something is sin? Or, man, can't we do anything we want since we're under grace? He says, no, we should be asking under the law of love and the law of liberty, as some have put it. He says, we should be asking, does this thing I'm about to do or not do, does it help me? Does it increase my joy in the Lord? Is it helping me love others and love the Lord? He goes on, all things are lawful for me but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be enslaved by anything. I've been freed in Christ. I'm now the slave of Christ. I'm not gonna be enslaved by anything else. How many of us have started down a track because we thought, I can handle it. I'm in control. I'm an adult. I have a right to do this. It'll be fun. It'll be a release. I'll only do it once. And we start down that track and we end up getting trapped. The addiction starts. That thing takes hold, and one day we wake up and we realize we're enslaved by the very thing that promised us freedom. Not all things are helpful, Paul says. I won't be dominated by anything. And loving Jesus 
doesn't mean you have a license to do whatever you want. It means, may we give our lives back to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to live my life for you. Verse 13, he goes on. He thinks, quotes what we think is another sort of statement that's being thrown around at Corinth. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, right? And Paul says, God will destroy both one and the other. The idea being, hey, if food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, again, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies, not with food, and then this is getting spilled over into not sexually, right? This isn't spiritual. Now, let me say, there's some truth to this idea that yes, um, like what you put in your body then gets expelled. Jesus talks about that. We're no longer under the Old Testament uh, dietary laws. Praise God. I like bacon as much as the next person. But the Corinthians have taken that and they've applied it and misapplied it and misinterpreted it in such a way they're saying, well, if, I mean, if the body doesn't matter, then what do we do? What does it matter what we do sexually? Why can't we just do what we want to do? That stuff's not spiritual. That's physical, and this body's going to die. And really, the only thing that matters is the soul or the spirit. And Paul fights back against that, saying, no, God created your body with a purpose. And one day, he's going to raise this body and transform it. He deeply cares about how you use it. He gave you a body to use it to glorify the Lord. And he addresses specifically sexually here. He says, the body is not meant It's not designed. God didn't give you your body for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He cares about your body and how you use it. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. See how he's rooting this in the gospel. God raised Jesus from the grave bodily and physically. He's going to raise you too. And he'll raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, we who've been united to Jesus through faith, and make them members of a prostitute? He says, never should those of us who've been united to Christ through faith go and unite ourselves sexually to a prostitute through sex. And you say, why is he talking about prostitution? Again, this is something specifically relevant to the Corinthians. Uh, They had temples in Corinth where you could go and as part of the religious ceremony and worshiping an idol, you'd have sex with a temple prostitute. And you might hear that and say, oh my goodness, that sounds horrifying. And it is. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, we look at our culture and we realize, yeah, we don't go to the physical temple for sex. We go to the digital one. We don't have to walk up the hill to the temple. We just download it off the web. My goal in saying that is not to shame any of us who are viewing uh, pornography, but I do want to warn us. If that's where you are, I want to warn you and to call you out of it. Please reach out to a staff member or to a mature believer in your life. Take a step today. Don't be deceived. Don't keep walking in that. Take a step today to confess that sin to the Lord and to others and to bring it out of the darkness and into the light and say, Lord, I want to be healed of this. I want to give my life and my my body to you, not for sexual immorality, but for the honoring of the Lord. He goes on and says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So what Paul does here, here is he appeals to the original creation account, right? Goes back to Genesis 2 the account of man and woman, to help us understand the purpose of sex. And this is so important. Apostle Paul tells us, right, Genesis 2 tells us, God created sex for a wonderful and beautiful purpose, for multiple purposes. One, for procreation, 
for the creation of children and the next generation to multiply and populate the earth. But two, it's something that binds people together. It brings two people and they become one. It's not just a physical act with no repercussions. It's something physical and emotional and spiritual and it's beautiful and it's enjoyable. God gave it to us for our enjoyment and it's powerful. It binds people together. It unites them. And you notice Paul keeps saying this. He says marriage itself, it's a picture, right? As a husband and wife unite themselves to one another, that's a picture of the way we unite ourselves to Christ through faith. It's actually a picture of the gospel, that unity. And so he says God's purpose for sex is that it would unite a man and a woman together inside of the lifelong covenant of marriage. And that's the biblical boundary for sex. That's the design and the guardrails. One man, one woman who complement one another physically and sexually and emotionally and spiritually inside of the security and safety of the lifelong covenant of marriage. And that covenant itself and the unity a husband and a wife experience is a picture of the very unity between Jesus and his church. Now, what I just said, what I just said, I believe is clear from Scripture. And I also understand it is extremely controversial in our current cultural moment. Let me say that again. I believe what I just said is clear from Scripture. And I also understand it is very controversial in our culture right now. So I want to come back and address that. Um, But let me finish the passage, and then I'll come back to that. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. When you've received Christ, you've received in the spirit of God into your life. Flee from sexual immorality, Paul says. Run from it. Don't play with it, (laughs) right? Flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, the Apostle Paul says, that your body is a temple, collectively as the church, the body, and your individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. There's no longer a physical temple where the Spirit of God dwells. We are that temple. You, he tells the Corinthians, and to you and me. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body with the things you do, with the things you eat, with the things you say, and in how you handle yourself sexually. Paul says you were bought at a price. The price being the very blood of Jesus shed at the cross. He has purchased you back, so honor him, glorify him with your body. Listen to me, believer, I just want to encourage you and remind you this morning, if you're in Christ, you are so precious to the Father. He loves you. He's a good father. You're his child, your son or his daughter. That's your primary identity. And he values you beyond what you and I can really fully comprehend. The spirit of God is within you. And that's why Paul says, don't don't just use your body however you want. That's not what it's designed for. Use it to magnify him. Now, I want to spend the last few minutes I have here just addressing what I just said about sex and marriage and sexual immorality. And I'm I'm doing that. Please hear my heart in that. I'm doing this not because I think, hey, this is more important than the other things. We don't need to rank sins in any way, shape, or form. I'm addressing it because I think more than all the other ones listed there, 
Paul lists out a half dozen things there that he says keep us out of the kingdom. But I think more than all the others, um, this is probably the most controversial in our culture right now. And I, I want to, what Paul says here is he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about this, right? And this, again, it's so controversial. I think sexual immorality right now in our culture, there's confusion around it. There's conflict around it. And so I want to try to offer some clarity to this. And as I, as I even say that, I'm going to go back again and just say, as we don't rank these, don't listen to what I say here and say, yep, yep, amen, and, and judge people because they're struggling differently than you are. If you're on the one hand saying, you know, marriage between man and a woman, on the one hand, but on the other hand, you're worshiping at the altar of sports, or you're greedy and you're never content with what you have, Paul would say these things are equally serious, right? So, so let, as we think about sexual immorality, though, Paul, the, the Greek word that's used is porneia. It's where we get our word for pornography. And it's an expansive term that refers to any sexual activity, out, activity outside of healthy marital sex between a man and a woman. But to some extent, the Apostle Paul spelled that out for us. He named some of them, but when you look across the scriptures, you would see it's homosexual activity, adultery, pornography, sexual abuse, and any sexual activity, again, outside of marriage. And <clears throat> I'll say, sometimes I think within the church, right, we hear some of those and we go, yes, right? But then other ones, we kind of want to go, yeah, I know that's sinful, but let's like wink our eye at it. Uh, you know, young dating couple, right? Heterosexual dating couple, guy and lady. Like if you're dating, but you're having sex before marriage, the Lord's not like winking his eye and saying, you know, it's fine. Just get married maybe at some point in time. That's not how we approach that as believers. That's not what God designed that for. That's for a man and a woman inside the covenant of marriage. I love you. If you're heading towards marriage, either get married or don't do that. And praise God, we've had some young couples, just their stories in the context of our church are just incredible. Remember one couple, they were living together. Uh, neither one of them really had a background of following Jesus. Their family backgrounds were kind of divorced on all sides. And so they just didn't know, like, what does this look like? And so they're dating, uh, they're getting engaged, but they've been living together for some time, sexually active for some time. And, and eventually they came to us and said, hey, as we're learning what it means to follow Jesus and his redemption in our life, we think we need to get right here. What do we do? And we said, well, you could move your wedding really far up or you can wait till your wedding and you could stop living together and, and remain uh, celibate until that point in time. And they said, you know, we just want to get married. And so in a private ceremony that week, right, <laughs> just a couple of days later, we went to uh, the church and they were married there. And it was beautiful to see this couple say, hey, we want to glorify and honor God with our bodies. The point is the Bible repeatedly and clearly teaches that sex outside of those parameters is sin. And rather than justifying it or condoning it or celebrating it, the Lord calls us to repent of it and to be forgiven and washed clean and then to walk differently. Now, what is so controversial about that is I, I recognize some of us don't believe that. Some of us hear that right now. And um, some of us are, are just struggling with what to believe. Some of us vehemently disagree. Some of us are confused. And I know for some of us, this is not just intellectual or theological, it's deeply personal. So let me kind of close out here in these last couple of minutes just by addressing a few different folks. One, 
some of us may be listening this morning and um, you're a Christian, you love Jesus, you believe what the Bible teaches, you want to submit yourself to God's word and you experience same-sex attraction and you're not sure what to do with that. And I just want to tell you, we love you and I hope you do not feel ashamed of that. I hope you feel freedom and permission and encouragement to share that with someone, with a mature believer in Christ with one of the staff members, a mature believer in your life group, and by God's grace, that will be met with compassion and love and just the encouragement. Look, all of us are called to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. Let's do that together. I know others of us uh, may be listening right now, and you may identify as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. You wouldn't just say, hey, I experience uh, same-sex attraction, uh, but I identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual or something else. And, and you may be hoping that, hey, can you just affirm that for me? I want to say something to you. We, we believe the Lord loves you. We love you even if we disagree. We love you even if we disagree. And I say that, and I think that's so important because right now our society seems to be teaching in this area in particular that agreement and affirmation equals love, and that disagreement in any shape or form equals hatred and bigotry. And I, I just don't believe that's true. We reject that. People can disagree and still treat one another with compassion and with love and with respect and graciousness. And I recognize that some Christians have not done that, and I'm sorry. But when it, comes to, when it comes to sex, a couple of things else I would say, right, to those maybe in this group. Um, I don't believe our sexual desires define who we are. It's not the sum of who we are. And I think that's part of the problem with this discussion. People are telling us right now, man, your sexual desires define your entire personhood. So for anyone uh, to say, hey, those sexual desires may not be God's intention or plan for your life. They're not good. They're not to be pursued. Well, then that's denigrating your very personhood. Jesus says differently. He says, no, your identity is found in me, that through him we are our father's children and our primary identity is as his sons and his daughters, beloved and redeemed. That's who we are in Christ. And so if you are listening and you're a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I want you to hear the gospel. I want you to hear, if you're asking questions and you're genuinely like, I'm confused, what does the Bible teach? We are eager to have conversations about what we believe it means to follow Jesus and find our greatest joy in him. But if you're wanting us to just look at you and say, hey, it's totally fine, the Bible doesn't teach that, and we'll just affirm the path or the direction you're going, we can't do that. It would be lacking in integrity, and I think ultimately lacking in love because we don't believe that's what the scriptures teach. We believe the scriptures are clear on this, and we don't believe that running down that path, it leads, the scriptures say it leads to destruction, not to your joy. And we want to say, no, turn from it, repent, find healing in Christ, and walk together then as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, I would say really to the rest of us, um, the apostle John tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth, and we also must be. And the reason I say that is some of us are champions of the truth. We, we are out there shouting the culture, you know, this is the way it is, and this is what the Bible teaches, between a man and a woman. 
but we've just not been gracious. Some of the comments made towards folks who are struggling with same-sex attraction or towards folks in the LGBTQ plus community, like they're unkind and hateful, and that's wrong. Church, as we share the truth, we also have to be full of grace and compassionate and loving. On the flip side, I think there are many of us who um, compassionate and merciful, but for the sake of a friend or a family member or a coworker or a classmate, we are tempted to bend and to break and to say, let's, let's not maybe share that truth or change our position on it because we want to fit the current cultural mood. We're tempted to break under the cultural pressure and wait. And I just want to say to us this morning, if that's where you are, yes, be compassionate. Yes, be full of grace. But you also have to be full of truth. And one of the most loving, compassionate things you can do for someone is to graciously give them the truth to tell them that Jesus died and rose again, that they might have new life in him, and then to teach them all of God's word, not to change it, ignore it, or tailor it for current cultural moments. Church, the cultural winds, they change fast. And the, the Lord's word, the spirit of God and our faith and the Lord's word, it's meant to be an anchor for us in the midst of those changing winds. And waves. And I would remind us of what Paul says here. Don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself. Our job is not to be popular or to be liked. It's to be faithful until the day we see Jesus face to face. And that's where it really brings us back to where we started. Why are Christians so backwards or judgmental when it comes to sex? And honestly, I would say our goal is not to be backwards or progressive. When it comes to sex, our goal is not to be conservative or cutting edge. Our goal is to be faithful to God's word. And I don't mean to not give a straight answer to the question, but I think the question itself is just a product of our time and place. The Bible and the global church have been saying the same thing about sex for 2,000 years. And in some times and places and cultures, that's popular and accepted. And in some times and places and cultures, it's considered restrictive or backwards. But that just depends on the direction of the wind. Our job is to be faithful. God is not against sex. Sex was his idea, and he gave it for our joy. But we, leave, we believe that joy is not found in doing whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. Our joy is found through repentance and faith in the man on the cross, Jesus crucified and resurrected. And that invitation to come, to find joy in him and our identity in him. It's open to anyone and everyone, all who would turn and trust him. Let's pray together. Father, I know that some are uh, encouraged by what we have talked about today. And I know some are uh, offended or hurt, or confused. And I pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would meet them right where they are. God, I ask that we would humble ourselves and submit ourselves to your word and not to our preferences. Lord, will you keep us anchored in the midst of changing cultural and societal winds? Father, will you help us to be full of grace and truth? And Lord, will you help each one of us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow you? And God, in you, may we find our greatest joy. Lord, we love you. Help us to be full of grace and truth. I like your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.